You're listening to the Mission Church Podcast. Each message comes from our Sunday morning gatherings where we worship in community, study God's Word, and grow in our faith together to the glory of Jesus Christ. The Mission Church is committed to helping each person belong and believe and to equip them to embrace the call of God upon their life. We pray these messages will build your faith and encourage you today. Well, we've been in the Gospel of Matthew for quite some time, and last week we took a little break, spent some time in Daniel chapter 1. This morning, I'm going to focus mainly on the book of Proverbs. We'll have Charlie the following week, and then hopefully get back to the rest of the Gospel of Matthew as we come to the beginning of September. But this morning, we're going to be looking at the book of Proverbs, and the book of Proverbs is all about what? Wisdom. Wisdom. And when I look at our world, we've never possessed so much knowledge and information as we do now. We've never been so educated and literate as a global population as we are today. And yet it amazes me that we are still spiraling down the black abyss of sin and selfishness and madness. It's evident that our world is missing something. It's evident that we are in tremendous need of something that we cannot possess via scholarship or academics or education. Just this week, the leaders of Australia literally told their population, do not speak to your neighbors, do not be kind to others, now is not the time. Amazing. Amazing. Less than 100 miles north in Los Angeles over the weekend, an anti-vax group in Antifa clashed. Stabbings, fightings, over what? Over masks or no masks? We recently pulled troops out of Afghanistan, only to send them right back in as we watched the Taliban take over the entire country and watch civilian lives be put in danger. Kindergarten through university is caught up in a gender and pronoun and race war. And the system's answer to it is to create more division between race and gender and individuals' beliefs. How can we be so intelligent? How can we have so much technology and advancement and yet still be in the position that we're in? It's because our world is devoid of wisdom. Our world is devoid of wisdom. Wisdom doesn't come from a specific political party. Wisdom doesn't come from a PhD or a college degree. Wisdom doesn't come from being a certain race of people. It doesn't come from a specific national flag. Wisdom comes from where? It comes from the Lord. It comes from above. And it can only be found through God and his word given by his Holy Spirit. And in a floundering world where both infrastructure and societies are literally crumbling, we need wisdom. And wisdom is not simply just knowing what to do, it's knowing how to apply it in the right time. How many of you in your own life, and this is me for sure, I know a lot up here, but getting it from here to here is a whole different ballgame. I know not to respond in anger to my kids when they do something, but what ends up happening? Wait, why are you laughing, Peter? Where are you? I, don't, I see your laugh. I don't even know where you are. It's easy for me to just respond in anger. I know that's not right, but trying to put it into practice is difficult. 
We know we shouldn't spend as much time on our phones. We know it's not healthy to be in social media as much as we are. And yet we find ourselves looking at the screen time at the end of the day going, how did nine hours go by so quickly? When we look at the book of Proverbs, it teaches us about wisdom, not worldly wisdom, but wisdom that comes from above that when applied actually bears fruit and points people to the person of Jesus Christ that gives them hope and life and something tangible that they can actually experience that is leading them in a right and honoring way to God. And so this morning, in order to kind of set the tone for Proverbs, we're going to look at 1 Kings chapter 3, starting in verse 7. And if you don't know anything about who wrote Proverbs, his name was King Solomon. There's a few other authors, but primarily King Solomon. And King Solomon was King David's son. And to give you some quick background and context, King David was a man after God's own heart, the greatest human king that Israel ever had. He was still sinful, he still had his faults, but he was considered a man after God's own heart. And he was incredibly successful with military campaigns to the point where when he came to the end of his life, they, meaning Israel, had rest from all their enemies. And when David dies and his son Solomon takes the throne, Solomon never has to fight a battle. Israel lives in complete peace with its neighbors. And so Solomon takes the throne from David Millions of God's people, this is the chosen people, these are the people that are meant to be a light to the world, a city on a hill, to be the ones that are ministering to the nations around them so that people can see God working through their lives. And Solomon comes with this kind of posture before the Lord. First Kings chapter 3 verse 7 says this, Solomon speaks and says, Now, O Lord my God, you have made your servant king instead of my father David, but I I am what? I am a little child. I do not know how to go out or come in. And your servant is in the midst of your people whom you have chosen. A great people, too numerous to be numbered or counted. Therefore, give to your servants an understanding heart to judge your people, that I may discern between good and evil. For who is able to judge this great people of yours? The speech pleased the Lord that Solomon had asked for this thing. What is Solomon asking for? He's asking for wisdom. Then God spoke to Solomon and said, Because you have asked for this thing, this wisdom, and have not asked for a long life for yourself, nor have asked for riches for yourself, nor have asked the life of your enemies, but have asked for your understanding to discern justice, behold, I have done according to your word. And as the story goes, Solomon becomes the wisest man to have ever lived, literally being given the counsel of God in every matter that he ever faced in his life. Now, even Solomon in his own life didn't always apply the wisdom he was given, but he was given tremendous wisdom and he wrote those things down in the book of Proverbs. And what I love about the book of Proverbs is it speaks to the generalities of our everyday life. It speaks not so much theologically, but more in the practical matters that we face and how to apply what is good and right and true according to God's word to the realities of the things that we face on a daily basis. And I want you to flip over to Proverbs chapter 1. 
I'm going to give you a little introduction before we get into six separate Proverbs today. All on different subjects, hopefully some to be convicting and encouraging and challenging. But here is where the beginning of Proverbs start. And this is Solomon talking about what he desires to provide others through God's word, through this writing. It says in chapter 1, verse 1, The Proverbs of Solomon, the son of David, king of Israel, to know wisdom and instruction, to perceive the words of understanding, to receive the instruction of wisdom, justice, judgment, and equity, to give prudence to the simple, to the young man knowledge and discretion. A wise man will hear and increase learning, and a man of understanding will attain wise counsel, to understand a proverb and an enigma, the words of the wise and their riddles. And then verse 7 is the foundation. The fear of the Lord is the beginning of knowledge, but fools despise wisdom and instruction. Now we could spend a whole sermon unpacking Proverbs 1, 1 through 7, but to give you the brief summary is, in order to receive God's instruction, in order to have understanding of what he is teaching us in God's word, verse 7 tells us what the foundation is in order for us to receive this wisdom. It says that the fear of the Lord is the beginning of knowledge. Proverbs chapter 9 verse 10 also says something similar. It says the fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom and the knowledge of the Holy One is understanding. What is this fear of the Lord that is the beginning of wisdom or the beginning of knowledge? Well, this kind of fear of the Lord is not the fear of being struck by lightning by God. It's not the kind of fear that you have to walk around like ducking all the time anytime you think something bad. It's the kind of fear that has both reverence and love attached to this kind of fear of the Lord. I've talked about this before, but as a father, my desire is to have my kids fear me. Not to fear my hand, but to fear me in that, gosh, my dad loves me so much that I don't want to disappoint him because I know how much I love him too. This is the kind of fear of the Lord that we're called to with God. When we look at the scriptures, when we look at 1 John, it says that we loved God because why? Because he first loved us. Our response to God is love because he gave us love to begin with. And that love came through his son, Jesus Christ, who lived, died, and rose again. The kind of fear of the Lord that's being talked about comes through this. A dependency and humility in God. A dependency and humility in God. Notice Solomon's posture. He comes before the Lord and he says this. He says, I'm just like a little child. Now, was Solomon a little child at this time that he wrote it? Absolutely not. He was a grown man. He was someone who was fully capable of not only protecting and leading the people of Israel, but also someone who had his own wisdom, who was raised by David. And yet Solomon sees himself not as this king with a crown, a title, and authority over millions of people. Solomon sees himself as someone who, man, I'm God, I'm just an infant. I'm a baby. I am so dependent on you to help me lead your people. That's what the fear of the Lord looks like. 
to humble ourselves before a great and mighty God and go, Lord, just in order for me to breathe and move, I need you. I need this humble posture. If you're taking notes this morning, I want you to write these things down. Proverbs reveals wisdom in practical matters of daily life. Proverbs reveals wisdom in practical matters of daily life. What this means is, Proverbs addresses generalities. It may not be specific to every single minute circumstance in your life, but in general, what Proverbs teaches us is good wisdom to be applied in our daily life. It's less about theology and doctrine and more about what does the character of Christ apply to look like in the situations that you face at work, that you face in your family, that you face in your communities. Practical matters of daily life. The second thing that Proverbs reveals wisdom in is application of knowledge. Application of knowledge. Where's my golfers in the room? Raise your hand. (laughs) One guy went like this and then realized how he played and put it down real quick. I saw it. I know it. It's one thing to know stuff about golf. It's a whole other thing to what? To put it into practice. It's why I don't play golf. I'm terrible. It's the application of knowledge. Wisdom is taking not only what we know, but actually putting it into practice. It's one thing to know how to manage a budget. It's another thing to actually successfully manage a budget. This is what wisdom looks like. And then lastly, Proverbs reveals wisdom in a right relationship with God. A right relationship with God. Here is the key to receiving wisdom. Because wisdom comes from above, because wisdom belongs to the Lord, it is not something we can receive in our own strength, in our own education, in our own investigations. It must come from a place of dependency and humility in Christ in which we then have a relationship with Jesus in which we go, I need you. I am dependent upon you. I need your guidance and wisdom in my life for all things. Wisdom is revealed in a right relationship with the Lord. So that as Solomon gives these Proverbs, do not disassociate the wisdom of the word from the relationship with Jesus. They go hand in hand. Does that make sense? All right, our first proverb this morning is going to be in Proverbs 26, 20 through 22. Proverbs 26, 20 through 22. Go ahead and turn there. Most proverbs throughout the scriptures are just one verse, but there is something called parallelism. And parallelism is simply the second verse kind of amplifies what the first verse has already said. In this case, this one is three verses. Proverbs 26, 20 through 22. If you're there, give me an amen. Amen. Here we go. Where there is no wood, the fire goes out. And where there is no talebearer or gossiper, strife ceases. As charcoal is to burning coals and wood to fire, so is a contentious man to kindle strife. The words of a talebearer or a gossiper are like tasty trifles, and they go down into the inmost body. All right, do you have your helmets on? You guys ready? Okay, here we go. Where there is no wood, the fire goes out. Where there is no Fox News, the fire goes out. Where there is no CNN, the fire goes out. Where there is no gossip, conflicts cease. This is what Solomon is teaching. 
And it's so important for us to understand because it's something that we know in our heads. And as a church, we know this especially, and here's how we get around it. Hey, listen, I don't want you to tell anybody, but if you could be praying for so-and-so, here's what's going on in their life. And we find these ways to justify starting to spread what's going on in the lives of other people. And it would be one thing for us as the church just to say it happens out there, but certainly we know that it happens in here. And yet, here's my encouragement, is when I look at this proverb, when it says where there is no wood, the fire goes out, as I look across the globe right now, it's terrifying and scary to see how many places are literally on fire. I mean, on every continent except Antarctica. Everything has some place where it's on fire. And a good fire crew will come in and build what's called a fire line. How many of you know what a fire line is? A fire line is when brush is being burned or a forest is being burned, a crew will come in and they'll clear an open space. They'll take out timber and brush and get rid of it for the purpose that as the fire comes, when it hits that fire line, what happens to the fire? It dies. There's no fuel for it to continue. It stops right where it is. And church family, I want to encourage you this morning. The church is meant to be the fire line of gossip in this world. It's meant to stop with you. So that when garbage gets to you, or even when truth gets to you, which isn't yours to share, that you put a stop to it. Because where there is no wood, the fire goes out. Now in verse 22, there's some interesting language that Solomon uses. He says that the words of a talebearer or a gossiper are what? They're like tasty trifles. Now this is the hard part. This is the part that kind of hurts. But in our sinful nature, we like that kind of stuff. We like to see people fall. We like to see chaos reign. We like when the other party makes a fool of themselves. We like when the person that we don't, when we really don't like them. We like to see them fail. And this is what is on constant repeat on every avenue of media that is saturating our lives. It's like tasty trifles. And it's important for us to go, oh Lord, investigate my heart. How much time and energy and emotion am I spending consuming this trash? Because the more I receive, the more likely it's to dominate my conversations. It's to become the subject of what I talk about at the dinner table when little leers are listening. And almost none of it ends in hope. When gossip stops, conflicts end. If you're taking notes this morning, write that down. When gossip stop, conflicts end. Now, you all have the gift of the Holy Spirit if you are the followers of Jesus. Which means, yes, there certainly is a difference between gossip and awareness. I understand that. But we must be careful discerners because our flesh and our sin nature wants to grab on to those tasty trifles. Likes the chaos. Think about our world today. It's literally feeding off the mess of one another. And people enjoy it. Let the church be that fire line. 
let us be the ones to put an end to it. Church family, we are going to step on each other's toes. Amen? Let's try that again. Church family, we are going to step on each other's toes. Amen? It's going to happen. We're going to disagree on non-salvific issues. It's going to happen. We're going to get our feelings hurt. It's going to happen. But when one or both parties come together and go, wait a minute, you love Jesus, I love Jesus, and our primary goal is to share the good news of Jesus Christ, maybe we can set this aside and it doesn't have to become the main thing. Keep the main thing the main thing. When gossip stops, conflicts end. Next proverb, Proverbs chapter 15, verse 1. Anybody looking forward to the next five? Yes. Good. Me too. Just so you know, like four out of the six hit me so hard this week, and I was like, oh my goodness, I have to put these into practice because I'm not, not doing a great job. Namely, Proverbs 15, verse 1. Here we go. If you're there, say amen. amen. A soft answer turns away wrath, but a harsh word stirs up anger. The tongue of the wise uses knowledge rightly, but the mouth of fools pours forth foolishness. All right, I need your participation this morning. How many of you have ever been right in an argument? Raise your hand. I'm not asking about wrong. I said, who's been right? Yeah, all of us have been right. Now, let me ask you this question. How many of you have been dead right in the argument and completely wrong in the demeanor, the tone, the body language, and the way you communicated your rightness? Also, all of us. Listen, we've all experienced what it is to know that we're right. But wisdom would say, don't just take what's right and shove it in somebody's face. Take what's right and apply it in wisdom by using a soft and gentle answer. A soft and gentle answer. When you receive critical feedback, when someone says, I can't believe you, I can't, why would you do, how dare you, what's our tendency? You're like, let's go. You want, you want to start this? I'm already right, so I'm going to put you in the ground. Now, maybe that's not everybody here, just me. But when you get into those arguments, walls come up, don't they? We naturally get defensive. We naturally want to fight back. When you think about the British Parliament, like literally all they did was insult each other and whoever had the best insults seemed to win the day. When you think about the last five presidential elections, it had nothing to do with policy. It had nothing to do with actually investing in the lives of people. It had everything to do with who's going to have the better comeback. Who's going to put the other person six feet under? Who's going to make the other look like a fool? And this is what our sinful nature wants to do, is simply fight back. And it's counter to who we are for God's spirit to begin moving in us with, his spirit, with, his, with the character of Christ and to reshape and remold so that when someone points the finger at us, we instead have a soft answer to turn away wrath. How many of you know the story of Gideon from the book of Judges? 
Uh, if you don't know the story of Gideon, here's just a quick context snapshot. Gideon came from one of the lesser tribes in Israel, which means kind of the weaker tribes, and he himself was a weaker man. And yet God chose him to be judge of Israel, which simply meant this. In a time when Israel was being oppressed by a, the nation of Midian, God chose Gideon to be the leader in order to rescue his people. And so God chooses Gideon, and God has this amazing plan. He goes, Gideon, you're going to defeat the whole Midianite army, tens of thousands of men with only 300 soldiers. And I'm going to give you the way to do that. And Gideon, in his obedience, does it, and Israel has a tremendous victory. And you would think this would be a time for celebration. But as we've noticed, with Obama's birthday party, for people who got uninvited, what were they? Disappointed, not happy, frustrated, vented on social media. We'll talk about that proverb in just a minute. <laughs> but there's some other men in the nation of Israel from the tribe of Ephraim that come to Gideon and they are not happy that they weren't invited to the Midianite slaughtering party. They wanted to be part of that victory. They wanted part of that glory. And look in Judges chapter 8 verses 1 through 3. It's right here on your screens. It says, Then the people of Ephraim asked Gideon, Why have you treated us this way? Why didn't you send for us when you first went out to fight the Midianites? And they argued heatedly with Gideon. A whole group of men from Ephraim go, What the heck, dude? We would have had your back. We would have been there. We wanted to get in the fight, and you take all the glory for yourself. What's your problem? Now, if you're in Gideon's shoes, what might be the temptation? I'll tell you what my problem is. God made me judge, not you. So you go right back to your little tribe, and I'm going to enjoy my victory. Thank you very much. But that's not what Gideon does. Look at verse 2. But Gideon replied, what have I accomplished compared to you? Aren't even the leftover grapes of Ephraim's harvest better than the entire crop of my little clan of Abiezer? Which is just saying this, listen, when I look at your muscles, and then I look at my muscles, dude, what are you complaining about, right? When I look at the work that you do on a daily basis, and then the work I do on a daily basis, I mean, you're so much greater. Verse 3, God gave you victory over Oreb and Zeb, the commanders of the Midianite army, which they did, by the way. These men of Ephraim hunted them down and killed them. What have I accomplished compared to that? When the men of Ephraim heard Gideon's answer, what happened? Their anger subsided. Why? Because Gideon chose a soft answer because it turns away wrath. When I apply this to my parenting, I don't always do this super well. But I know this, when I give a soft answer to my children, instead of a wrathful answer to their behavior, we can then begin to address the heart of what's going on. And we can have conversation, and we can get to the root of the problem, instead of just this butting heads. Think about Jesus in his interaction with the Samaritan woman at the well in John chapter 4. She has some pretty bitey responses to him. She tries to bait him. At one point, she even says the words, Who do you think you are? You think you're greater than our father Jacob? 
It's Jesus. He could have put her in her place so fast, but instead he has a gentle and soft answer. And what's the result of that conversation? Oh, she comes to saving faith and then sprints to the Samaritan town she's from and shares the good news with everybody else. And the whole town comes out and follows Jesus. A soft answer turns away wrath. Now, like I said, this is general. It's not prescriptive, which means there is a time where you must be vocal and you must stand for what is right when sin is beating down your door. That is called discernment, right? We don't just speak softly all the time, but in general, when someone accuses us, when someone insults us, when someone points the finger at us, instead of returning that in kind, a soft answer turns away wrath. What I love about this is it teaches us how even when we are right, the way that we communicate how we're right is really important. The way that we come alongside someone patiently and we shepherd them and we lead them and they, we teach them instead of forcing their head underwater in order to say, okay, okay, I give. I'll take, I'll take what you're saying. Be patient. Sometimes that takes years. Sometimes that takes incredible self-control. And yet just because you're right doesn't mean we force people to agree with it. When we think of what God did, he literally sent his son into a rebellious world that wanted nothing to do with him, that was acting in sin and selfishness, that was there to simply feed themselves and prey on others, and yet God extends his olive branch of Jesus to say, hey, here is my soft response so that I can turn away wrath. And for those who come to Christ, they are turned from wrath. For some of us, this is difficult. It's a long process. When we combine pridefulness with passion, it's a dangerous one-two punch. There's nothing wrong with being passionate. There's everything wrong with being passionate when it's about us instead of about Jesus. And when it is about Jesus, I just don't see Christ exemplifying any kind of malice or hatred or finger pointing, but instead in gentleness and peace and patience, he leads and guides people into saving grace. A soft answer turns away wrath. Our third proverb is Proverbs 29, 11, 29, 11. You still with me? All right. I'm going to move through these last four and 25 minutes. Some of you laughed like, yeah, right. That's great. That's okay. We'll see. Soft answer turns away wrath. (laughs) Proverbs 29, 11. If you're there, give me an amen. Amen. Here we go. A fool vents all his feelings, but a wise man holds them back. A fool vents all his feelings, but a wise man holds them back. How many of you are prone to emotionally charged responses? Yeah, probably, probably many of us. Emotionally charged responses. Oftentimes we find ourselves, whoever's nearest, throwing up all over them. Telling them everything that's going on in our life. Desperate to just pour our suffering and our feelings on other people. 
And yet Solomon says, a fool vents all his feelings, but a wise man holds them back. And here's what's good for us to put into practice. When we simply go to the nearest social media outlet, we can share whatever's going on in our life with literally hundreds to thousands of people depending on who your network is. And our culture kind of encourages this to say, hey, this is good for you, get things off your chest, um, commiserate with others, maybe they have some good advice, but I can tell you this, if you're asking 1,000 people for advice, you're gonna get some good advice and you're gonna get what? Some really bad advice. And when we live in a world devoid of wisdom, you're gonna get more what kind of advice? Bad advice. Bad advice that is self-serving. Hey, you don't deserve that. You should just drop that person. Hey, I can't believe someone treated you that way. Here's how you can get back at them. Hey, you know what? Let's just go out and get a drink together and we'll, we'll just forget about this whole thing. There's plenty of worldly wisdom out there, but a wise man holds his feelings back. And here's why that's important. When we just go and dump all our stuff on other people, it shows that we're putting our hope and trust in man instead of our hope and trust in God. There's absolutely nothing wrong with having feelings. God is an emotional God. God is the one who gifted us feelings. But what we do with them and how we steward them is very important in our walk with Jesus Christ. Think about this. If you have 10 people in your life to steward, and two of them are going through crises and leaning on you, does that put pressure on you? Does that cause you maybe some angst? Does it consume your time, your energy, and your emotions? You bet it does, as it should. We mourn with those who mourn, and we weep with those who weep. But we are to do that within the stewardship of, God, of those that God has given to us in those intimate relationships. When we start bearing the weight of all the world's natural disasters, and all the political turmoil, and all the corruption, and all the wickedness of sin and rape and murder and kidnappings. And on top of that, our social network feed is filled with people who are showing their lives as completely ridiculous in all the parties or vacations that they go on, like that's their only life, or the vice versa of, man, I'm going through a divorce or I lost this person. And you start compacting all of that, you're literally being bombarded with hundreds to thousands of pieces of burdens that do not belong to you and have not been given to you to steward, and yet our heart feels the weight. And that begins to affect us spiritually. It can cause hopelessness, discouragement, feelings of being overwhelmed, and doubt. And an incredible God who desires for us to walk with others through a ministry of presence, but not to bear the weight of the world. It's not what he called us to. Whose job is that? It's his. It's his. Matthew 11, 28 through 30, Jesus says, Come to me, all you who labor and are heavy burdened. I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you and learn from me, not from the news, not from 16 hours of social media, learn from me, for I am gentle and lowly in heart, and you will find rest for your souls, for my yoke is easy and my burden is light. 
Bring your emotions before the Lord. Bring your emotions before the Lord. Do this first. Now, there's nothing wrong with going to a brother or sister in Christ that you have relationship with. There's nothing wrong with going to a spiritual leader in your life that has authority to walk with you. But the moment you start dumping all your stuff on every single person that you know, not only are you endangering yourself to receive unwise counsel, but you're also endangering others and overloading them with things that do not belong to them from a stewardship standpoint. Go to God before you go to your social media accounts. Think about Jesus. I love this example. It's right before he's about to be betrayed. Him and his disciples are in the Garden of Gethsemane. And he invites his disciples in to do what with him? To pray. Hey guys, I really need prayer. But then he goes off by himself. Not with his disciples, off by himself. And it's a messy scene. Don't think that this scene is in a nice, neat box. It's a messy scene. Lord, if, if there's another way, I don't want to go through this. It's scary. It's going to be painful. I don't want to be alone. I don't want to be rejected. But your will be done. And how many times does he do it? Three times. Listen, it's okay to be emotional. It's okay to feel anxious. It's okay to be scared. But where should we go? Oh, we should go to the Lord. Because he is the steward of our feelings. He knows what we need before we even ask for it. This is important for us to recognize. Bring your emotions before the Lord. And then, in those that God has placed in your life, who can point you back toward Christ... Share those burdens for the very purpose of growing in your character and in your faith. Proverbs 12.25. Proverbs 12.25. Are any of these hitting home? Yes. Okay. So as I said earlier about Proverbs, it speaks in generalities does not mean it's prescriptive or is the answer for every small thing, but is the general truth that must be applied to our life. And Proverbs 12:25 says this, anxiety in the heart of man causes depression, but a good word makes it, meaning the heart, glad. Anxiety in the heart of man causes depression, but a good word makes it glad. What is anxiety? It's worry. It's fear, both irrational and rational. It's pain, it's sorrow, it's feelings of overwhelmness. These things are common to man. These things are common to all people. And the lie of the enemy is you're the only one who's in this spot. You're the only one who's suffering from this thing. And listen, anxiety is very real. And just because you're a Christian does not mean that you don't become anxious or depressed. That's really important to receive, church. It doesn't make you a bad Christian if you get anxious. And we must also go to God's word to look at, well, what does God's word say about anxiety and depression? Because it does address it. Notice that Solomon says, anxiety in the heart of man. 
in the heart indicates taking root, gaining a foothold, getting to the core of who we are or our soul. And depression is the direct result when anxiety gets into the heart and takes root. So the question is, how do we combat anxiety and depression? I believe it's God's word is to be in our heart. Not simply knowing it up here, but through that dependence and humility, that foundation in which we receive wisdom, putting what we know into practice. Um, every year, my wife and I and our four kids try to take a trip up to Oregon. And we always road trip it. And we pack the van. And you're trying to pack for like camping and fishing, but you still try to go to a church service with a family. So you got to have nice clothes and then you got to have food and then you got to have all your clothes and sleeping gear and, you know, just in case um, cornhole and everything else that you pack. And by the time you're done and you're ready to leave, what's happened to the van? It's full. And then you realize, snap, there's a kid that hasn't gotten in the van yet. <laughs> and you have to make room for that person or for the thing that you forgot to come in and I think this is oftentimes what happens in our life when we are bombarded by so much that causes us anxiousness when it begins to take root in our heart as God word, God's word comes in truth and in life the heart goes I don't have room I've got all this I got to deal with I've got all this anxiousness that I got to deal with I don't have room to receive that and yet Solomon says a good, work, good word makes our heart glad. I believe it's God's desire to make us so saturated in his scriptures, so full of his power working in our lives, so transformed by the character of Christ that when anxiety comes and says to the heart, let me in, the heart goes, I have no room. Now, that's a nice picture know that the realities of life it's more complicated than that but I do know what God's word says look at Philippians chapter 4 verse 6 and 7 it says don't worry about anything thanks Paul <laughs> right I mean if you just read the beginning of this verse you're like well I'm guilty how many of you don't worry in this room ever? It's not really possible. It's, we all worry, but Paul gives something to combat the worry. He says, don't worry about anything. Instead, what? Pray. Now, we have to get out of our religious box. Prayer isn't just sitting nice and neat, hands folded. Thank you for this food. God, you're so good. Listen, it's messy. It's the emotions. It's crying out. It's what Jesus was doing in the garden. It's the prayer that goes, Jesus, I'm desperate and dependent for you. I need you. I'm like a little child. That's the type of communion that Paul is talking about. Tell God what you need. Well, elsewhere in scripture, God already knows what? What we need before we even ask for it. But he asks us to participate so that when I go, oh God, I need more money in my bank account. God goes, no, you need more trust in me. <laughs> this relationship to really work out. No, what you need is our relationship to work out. And our prayers begin to be shaped by the character that God desires to build in us. Tell God what you need and then thank him for all he has done. What might we thank God for doing? 
Yeah, sending his son, right? No matter what's going on in our life, can we always be thankful for that? You bet. And what that does is it begins to put into perspective. Listen, we have real and practical needs, and it's not wrong to pray for things on earth. Not at all. But when we begin to realize and remember what God has already done, it puts us in the right creature-creator's relationship in which we go, God, that's right, that's who you are, that's who I'm praying to. Now as I bring this before you, that's manageable for you. It's just not for me. And then the second part of Paul talking about this anxiety, then you will experience God's peace, which exceeds anything we can understand. I don't believe that peace means that our circumstances always change. I don't believe that peace makes us feel good inside. I believe that peace is the perseverance and the endurance that we're called to just keep going, to keep hoping, to keep trusting and praying. And his peace will guard your what? will guard your hearts. Why do we want our hearts guarded? Because once anxiety sets in, depression is the result. And God desires to guard our hearts through prayer and through understanding what he has done. To guard your hearts and minds as you live in Christ Jesus. God's word is our weapon to fight anxiety. God's word is our weapon to fight anxiety. I want you to know, if you're here this morning and you struggle with anxiousness, you struggle with depression, there is absolutely no shame in talking to spiritual leaders or brothers and sisters in Christ about what you're going through. It does not make you less of a Christian. Are we understood on that? It's really important. But it is good to realize the Bible addresses this and God isn't just giving a pretty picture when he says that his word makes our heart glad. Run to the word. Run to the word. Be washed in the word. Next proverb, Proverbs 11.14. Proverbs 11.14. Two more left. If you're there, say amen. Here we go. Where there is no counsel, the people fall. But in the multitude of counselors, there is safety. Where there is no counsel, the people fall. But in the multitude of counselors, there is safety. Well, we know from Scripture that ultimately, who is the wonderful counselor? It's Jesus. And we know that his Holy Spirit gives us counsel and understanding of what we read in God's word. And we know that counselors can be everyone from professional people, as long as they're grounded in Jesus Christ, to simply a friend who is a follower of Jesus and can point you back to God's word. But here is why counsel is so important. We live in a world where everyone does what is right in their own eyes. And what has been the result of that? complete and utter chaos to the point where right is wrong and wrong is right and backwards is forwards and everywhere in between with just about everything I mean it's so insane right now that it doesn't make any logical sense and yet we're just continuing down that path as both a nation and as a world and here's why counsel is so important when we think about counsel let's just take a practical example 
This is, I just want to be very clear. This is not directed at anybody, but it's all something that most of us have thought about. So if it hits you, like, it's the spirit, not me. Got it? How many of you have thought of moving out of state? Yeah. <laughs> Lots of conversation in this room, right? No question about it. Now, if I were to ask, well, why do you want to move out of California? Your response might be? Newsome. <laughs> Taxes. Because it's whack. Whatever it is, right? The political climate. The school climate. I mean, we can name a million things. Hey, fair enough. Fair enough. But here is what wise counsel would do. Is you would go to somebody and say, hey... I'm thinking about this, and just so that you know, thinking does not mean, I've thought about this, I've made my decision, but I'd like to ask you about your opinion so that I can offend you the least when I tell you what I've already decided. <laughs> it means open-handedly coming again to a brother or sister in Christ, to a spiritual leader in your life, and saying, hey, can you, can you hit me with some questions? Can you give me some counsel? Here's what we're thinking. And that person might ask things like, Hey, are you running from your problems or are you moving because God's calling you? Is this feelings driven or is this bathed in prayer? Have you looked into a Christ-centered community where you can serve and use your giftings? Or you can grow in Christ? Or you can build community? Is that available in the place that you want to go? No? But you get the lake? Hey, that's great. That'll bring you closer to God in nature. Listen, in my own life, I chased a career one time. I didn't ask God if it's what he wanted for my life. I just did it. And I got to where I wanted to be, and I was joyless and purposeless, and I hated myself. And it took a counterpart of mine to go, JC, have you ever asked God what he wants for your life instead of what you dream for your life? And I was like, oh, he's sending me to Africa. <laughs> But instead, he did one better and sent me to the Mission Church. Yeah. Listen, why does a president have a cabinet? Some of you are like, I'm not answering that question with the cabinet right now. It's for wise counsel. Why does a CEO have a board of directors? It's for wise counsel. Within the church body. There's pastors, elders, mission group leaders, brothers and sisters in Christ that you can go to. Seek wise counsel before you make decisions. Seek wise counsel before you make decisions. Because without wise counsel, people fall. But there is safety when you seek many wise counselors. Last proverb, Proverbs 13:24. Proverbs 13, 24. Tried to pick a nice, easy one to end on. <laughs> if you're there, say amen. All right, here we go. He who spares his rod hates his son, but he who loves him disciplines him promptly. Quite a controversial verse in our society, isn't it? 
how to discipline children. And here's, here's part of the twisted mindset that we have, is when we think of disciplining children, what automatically comes to mind? Do you spank your kids or not? Guys, in my discipline in which God has given me, there's been a lot more than just spankings. There's been some of those too, but there's been a lot more. Solomon says, he who spares his rod hates his son. Well, we look at the scripture in its totality. And what's one of the most famous places where it talks about a rod? Yeah, shepherd, Psalm 23. So we go to Psalm 23 that says, even though I walk through the valley of the shadow of death, I will fear no evil for your rod and your staff. They do what? They comfort me. They comfort me. I cannot find anywhere in the scriptures where the rod that is used when a predator comes is just to gently guide the predator. What's the rod get used for when the predator comes? It's to beat it, to kill it, or to send it away. But when that rod is used on the sheep, how is that rod used? It's certainly used in a corrective and disciplinary way, but it's gentle. It's much different than the way that it gets used for the predator. And this is important for us to understand, not only in our parenting, but in the way that we respond to others, especially those as we grow in our spiritual maturity. If we're dealing with people that aren't as spiritually mature, how do we treat them? Do we beat them with God's word or do we gently come alongside them and go, hey, would you want to grab some coffee and maybe go through a couple of verses with me? That might be a better approach. Now, when it comes to parenting, think about this. I would encourage you this week to read Ezekiel 34. It would be good for your soul. Um, be a great study on what the good shepherd is and how Jesus fulfills that. But it provides a beautiful paradox of what wicked shepherds look like and beat their sheep and devour them. And then what good shepherds look like in guiding, correcting, and training slash disciplining the sheep. And here's what I would say through parenting. Um, when your kids are roughly two to five years old, how many of you have ever tried to reason with a two-year-old? <laughs> Put your hand. My kids are raising their hand. There is no reasoning with a two-year-old, right? It's mostly behavior-based parenting or behavioral response parenting, which means this. When your little one smacks another little one, when they're throwing food, when they're screaming to get what they want, you parent in such a way that addresses the behavior because they aren't able to have a heart-to-heart -heart conversation about where their soul is at that moment. <laughs> now you laugh, but this is important because oftentimes we're spiritually dealing with people in the same age bracket. Do you understand what I'm saying? And we have to be careful about how we address them. Now, as our kids grow, our parenting should grow with our kids, which means this. As they grow, we should seek to pursue their heart and not just the behavior. The behavior is simply the symptom. If you want to address something, what do you need to address to get better? You have to address the root of the sickness. Just addressing the symptom, it just covers and masks something that doesn't go away. But you address the root and the sickness, and there can actually be healing and progression. And in our parenting, we are called to use the rod or to use discipline in a way that addresses the heart of our children or the heart of other people. Because it's about simply shepherding them, getting them to where they need to be, not just slamming down discipline to let them know you're angry and they're bad. 
you imagine if God did that to us? I'd be bruised all over the place. But that's not how he leads. Consider this. Discipline or the rod may look like not giving your teenage child a phone with internet access or the ability to send or receive pictures. That may be a way that the rod is correctly applied. Or it may be that you need to take away a phone from someone that you've already given it to and go, I erred in my parenting. That is my fault. I'm going to correct this. I know that causes you pain. We'll work through this together. The rod or discipline may look like withholding your child from a sporting event. God forbid. Hey, I'm not joking here. Sports has become a massive idol. And no matter what's going on at home, it sure seems like the kids just keep on playing. And yet if we're not addressing their character in the home, you darn well better believe it's going to come out in that sport too. Don't think that sports is going to fix your kids. Using the rod or discipline may look like withholding your child from a sporting event or a dance recital or a science camp in order to address the heart of behavior that's happening at home. Discipline may be teaching your child the difference between biblical values which should be followed in your home and then what are privileges which really are blessings and are not guaranteed. It's a great life lesson as your children grow up that when they walk in the ways that you set for them according to God's word, there are blessings. And when you choose to go against those things and rebel and give in to your sinful nature, we don't receive those blessings. And if that's taught in the home, imagine how that transfers into their life. But if it's not modeled in the home and there is a lack of discipline, they become entitled little snots. And we laugh, but look at our country. To appease our people, we hand out checks that we cannot back up. And we're trying to put a band-aid on a gunshot wound or to address a symptom because God forbid we actually address the sinful heart in people in which there's some serious work to be done here. It's the same in our parenting. The rod or discipline may often mean more pain and suffering for you as a parent, knowing that your child is going to punish you in return when you actually discipline your kid. How many of you who've parented already know that it causes you more pain than your child when you discipline them half the time? Man, it's hard. It would just be easier to be like, hey, it's okay, just don't do that again. But that rod is there for training and correction. Discipline is good for correction and training. Discipline is good for correction and training. Proverbs 3, 11 and 12 says this. My child, don't reject the Lord's discipline and don't be upset when he corrects you. For the Lord corrects those that what? That he loves just as a father corrects a child in whom he delights. It's the prover of that relationship that you have a dependency on God and God goes, I want to discipline you because I love you so that I can grow you and lead you to where you need to be. Don't despise that discipline. I want to leave you with this today, church. Read and memorize the Proverbs. Read and memorize the Proverbs. Here's how difficult it is and here's how easy it is. 
Do you know how many lines I can quote from Elf? Do you know how fast my brain is to go right to a dumb and dumber quote? Like, boom, so fast. And what wisdom do those have? All I learned was that there's sugar in syrup. That's it. But you memorize the Proverbs and you start to take God's wisdom from his word and you do it in the right timing with what you're facing. And wow, not only will you be gifted with understanding how to honor God in your own life, but you can begin to speak into the lives of others with the very power of Christ that makes people go, oh, how do you know that? And the world is so devoid of wisdom that it's still attracted to what God has to offer. Jesus is still somebody that people long for and hope for. It's what they desire. Read and memorize the Proverbs. Let's stand together. We'll pray and then uh, we'll worship on the way out. You may freely share this message with others as long as you don't charge for it. Support for these broadcasts comes from your generous donations that allow us to give away our materials for free. To participate with us, please visit our website at themissionchurch.net. God bless.